guys, as promised, I, I promised last Sunday that this was going to kind of be like a turducken sermon, all right? It's like a weird mixture of Thanksgiving, Christmas, and sex, all right? So that's what, that's what it is today. Um, let me explain if you're new, all right? Because um, uh, we've been in this sermon series, and I thought it was going to be three weeks, but I needed to extend it one last week because I just felt like I needed to finish it because I didn't feel like I could finish it last week. It's such an important topic that I just don't want to just don't want to leave it in the dust. I just want to make sure we we finish it and we land somewhere good. So, anyways, um, first Thanksgiving, um, we have a lot to be thankful for. And I just want to personally say, just as, as kind of, you know, like I'm not going to be able to celebrate Thanksgiving with all, with all of you, with my church family. We're going to be with, with our family at home. And, but um, usually at Thanksgiving, you go around, you say what you're thankful for. You know, a lot of families do that. But I guess just I wanted to take a moment just in our service today and just express to you just my gratitude, my, my thanks to you. Not just the way that you love Christy and I, but the way that you love and serve our kids is tremendous. Um, and uh, this has just been a really, really great church f- uh, for our family and I know for so, for, for so many of us. And I'm just filled with gratitude. I'm filled with gratitude every time I, I see uh, our, our people going to the hospital to visit somebody who's sick. I'm just filled with gratitude for, for uh, all the different, like, just small gatherings and groups that are happening where people are ministering and caring for one another, uh, where we're celebrating each other's kids' birthday parties, and we're, and we're just uh, contributing into one another's lives. It's a, it's a really cool thing. Another thing that humbles me is when I come in here on a Sunday and I just see the craziness that's ensuing of making all of this happen. It's pretty wild. I went into the back room in there um, and I saw the, the Edwards, you know, filling up the communion cups, you know, with, <laughs> you know how long that takes to fill up all those little communion cups? Um, it's, uh, and you know, like elves don't do it, everybody, okay? Like human beings are here and setting up all of this stuff with the crew. And then, man, the, the amount of work and effort it takes to watch all of our kids. Guys, we're, we're swimming in kids, which is such a cool thing. A part of our church. We have so many kids and the, the manpower, the woman power, the person power it takes uh, to make all of that happen is pretty, is pretty tremendous. So anyways, I just wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Last thank you, I wanted to say because of like this sermon series that we've been in, especially last week, guys, last week was a little bit of a wild week, all right? Because I said some words in last week's sermon that I've been like, I've been waiting like six years to say in a, in a, in a church service, all right? I'm just kidding. I've been waiting way longer than six years, all right? Um, And the topic was kind of like a really heavy topic. And I was was struck last Sunday. I looked out in the room and I just saw so many of, so many families with their middle schoolers in the room. And I just felt the weight of it. And I just felt like, what a, it's a humbling thing for for you parents to trust me with your, with your children to sit in here and trust me with such a tender topic. For, for us to talk about together. And I was just humbled and I was just thankful. And so anyways, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm just so, we're just, I'm just so grateful for our church. And I, and I hope you are too. I hope it's meeting your needs and it's, it's making you look more and more like Jesus um, every, every day. So um, as I said, next week we're starting Advent. Really, really excited to do that. But we need to finish up this last sermon series that we've been in. I've posted a lot of resources, books that I've read and you know, just in preparation for this. Um, and those are all on the website. I also gotta give a shout out to John Legend because I listened to a lot of John Legend as I was preparing for this sermon series. So I feel like he gets credit for part of it. Um, if you haven't been here for some previous weeks, 
um, then, you, then I'm sorry. You know, I can't recap everything, and you need to go back and listen because I'm making a case. I'm building a case. And if you don't understand kind of like the case, then you're going to be tempted to think that a Christian's view of sexual ethics has to do with just rules, that God just gave us some rules that we're supposed to follow. And if, and if, you, and if you think that's the case, you couldn't be further, further from the truth. It doesn't stem from just here's some rules that we're supposed to follow in order for us to be pure or good or lovable or liked by God. It has nothing to do with that. And it has everything to do with our new identities that we have in Christ. For those that follow Jesus, there's something happens in our hearts where we, where we have uh, our loves are reordered. We have a new vision for what this world is about and who God is and who we are. And out of that flows, out of that flows a new vision for what it looks like to be human, a new vision for what our sexual desires and what these bodies are made for and how we're supposed to leverage them. Um, it all st- uh, springs out of that. Um, sexual desire is beautiful and it's so beautiful because God made it which is kind of incredible. And it's so beautiful and so precious that God wants us to care for it, to delight in it, and also to protect it. Um, so it shouldn't surprise us be that something so beautiful and precious should have some, some boundaries, some things around it. And our culture doesn't like that. Our culture thinks that boundaries take away freedom. You put a boundary somewhere, it takes away your freedom. But the Christian has a different perspective. We see boundaries as being something that actually, actually gives us more freedom. Have you ever been driving in a foreign country? Have you ever driven in a foreign country where there are no street signs or like no stop lights or anybody done that? It's terrifying, right? It's terrifying. I mean, it's just the Wild West and everybody's driving everywhere and it's just like, and it's crazy. Um, and it's hard to get places. And then when you come back to the United States, you know, because normally when you're living in the United States, you're like, oh, stoplights. And then you go to another country and then you come back and then you're like, thank you, stoplights. <laughs> thank you. Oh, God bless you. Because you just, you just get like, wow, like these this, these stoplights and road, you know, and like place for, for, bar, for, for, for bikes to drive and, you know, and all that, this is actually gives us more freedom. It doesn't take it away. And so the same is true that the Christian view sexual desire. It gives us more freedom. And so anyways, the question that we've been looking at is not, hey, what list of sins should we avoid doing? The, a bigger question, a deeper question is about sexual formation. It's the qu- question of who am I becoming? Who am I becoming by what I'm doing? How is this shaping me and forming me? And so we said a whole lot of things. We said, first, Jesus is going for the heart in this issue. And in all issues, Jesus is going for the heart. In fact, if you read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity Required Reading, he has a chapter on sex. And you know what he says in that chapter? He says, hey, everybody, just so you know, this stuff right here that I'm about to talk about, this is not the center. This isn't the center. This isn't the center of our faith. This is downstream from God trying to get our hearts. We also said that Jesus is inviting his followers to participate in an alternate kingdom. So what we're not doing here, we're, we're not setting up a, a moral standard for, you know, for everyone or for all of society. You need to follow our rules. No, no, no. It's more of a question of if you follow Jesus, if you have a vision for who he is and what he says about the world, then what does that mean for me? And so if you're not a Christian here, listen, you are in the right place. We're so glad you're here because we just want you to consider this to be you're listening in on a conversation that we're trying to have about, hey, with our new identities in Christ, how are we supposed to view our bodies? How are we supposed to view sexual intimacy? We've also said that Jesus has grace for the struggle. He has grace for the struggle. Um, We're about to launch into Christmas. Jesus knows what it's like to have a body. He knows what it's like to have conflicting desires and feelings. Therefore, he, he knows. And therefore, he has grace for the struggle. And, the struggle. and then lastly, Jesus is a friend of sinners. 
He's a friend of sinners. That's good news for every single one of us. Right? You see Jesus walking around in the New Testament. He, is, he creates space for people with all sorts of backgrounds. People who think that they shouldn't have space at his table, he makes a space for them. That's good news for all of us. Um, so Jesus, uh, he, he loves us and he wants the best for us. And so therefore, Jesus doesn't say fear sexual desire. Unfortunately, that's what the church has done. A lot of times in the past is just fear, sexual desire. Jesus doesn't say fear, sexual desire. And Jesus doesn't say follow your sexual desire. Both of those things, both of those things just lead to disaster. Both of those things just will not work. Jesus comes in and says, no, give me your desires. Give me your desires. Surrender them and I will bring healing and restoration. Just surrender them to me. Don't fear them. Don't try to bottle them up and say that they're dirty or gross. No, no, no. And don't just follow them. That's going to just lead to destruction too. He says, give them to me. So I want to read you a passage of scripture this morning. I'm going to read it from the version called uh, The Message. Um, and uh, this is Eugene Peterson's sort of like, it's transliteration of this passage. And I'm just going to read you in the way that, that, uh, that Eugene Peterson does it. Because I just think the way that he says it is so helpful. This is Galatians chapter 5. Paul is writing to this church of people just like us with all sorts of questions about, hey, well, now that I am following Jesus, what does that mean for me? And so there's all sorts of questions going on. And Paul's writing and answering them. And listen to what he says. And I'm just going to, it's kind of a bigger section of scripture this morning. But hey, we're in church, Okay. You're not going to get, down, get this down at Super Taco, all right? So we're just going to do it right now. I'm going to give you uh, some scripture this morning, and then we'll unpack a few things. So Galatians 5 says this, It is absolutely clear what God has call, that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you will be annihilating each other. And where will your, pre well, where will your precious freedom be then? He says this, my counsel is this. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sin, sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with the spirit in us, just as the spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical, so you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the spirit? and so escape the erratic com compulsions of a law-dominated existence. He, I mean, Paul's, Paul's saying that there's, the, the Christian has like a new source of, of, of power inside. He says that you, now we have the Holy Spirit that lives in us and, and, that we, and is, encourages us and helps walk with us all throughout the day. He says, walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. If you're reading in your own translation, this is the part where Paul says, walk by the Spirit, not by the, not by the flesh. And then he says this, it's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your, uh, get your own way all the time. And he has a list of things here. He says, repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or to be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, 
the vicious, ha- the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, I could go on. But this isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom like this, you will not inherit God's kingdom. It just means if you use your freedom like this, then this is not going to be the soil that God's kingdom is going to be able to grow in. And don't you want God's kingdom to come? And then he, he gives us a taste in this next section of what God's kingdom could look like. And this is uh, traditionally known as the fruit of the Spirit. You've probably heard of those before, the fruit of the Spirit. And so Paul says this, but what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others. That's love. Exuberance about life. That's joy. Serenity. That's peace. We develop a willingness to stick with things. That's patience. A sense of compassion in the heart. That's kindness. And a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. That's goodness. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments. That's faithfulness. Not needing to force our way in life. That's gentleness and able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. That's self-control. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to, to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good. It's crucified. Paul says here that the goal for the Christian is we don't follow our desires, but in a way we crucify them. We put them under the lordship of Christ. And since this is the kind of life that we have chosen, the life of the spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. So good. So good. Notice that Paul is not saying, follow these rules and God will love you. Paul is saying, listen, we've got a new identity. Therefore, therefore, when we let other things form us away from that, these are the things that are going to happen and we don't want those. But when we let our lives be formed by who he is, there's this fruit that happens. And isn't it beautiful? Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we, what our, what we want our lives to be formed into? And so we said that the formula is this. Over these last four weeks, we said this, we said that Jesus's formula for, for like sexual wholeness, we'll say, is this. It's we need vision plus power plus practices equals restoration. It means a vision. It means a new vision for sexual desire, new vision for what it's for, a new vision for who he is and what our bodies are for. We covered that um, in, the, uh, in the first week, I believe. And then we need power, power, not willpower and not fear power. You know what? You know what? Willpower. You know what? Most people, when, when, if, if Jesus is in the mix and if we're not walking in the Spirit, all we're left with is just trying harder, right? It's just willpower. Don't look at porn. Oh, I'm just going to try. And you just try. You just, you know, willpower. I just need more willpower. And then you just fail and you fail and you fail. And it's like, man, I need more willpower. And it's never enough. You know, I, was, I found this backstage just right before I got up here. And it made me think, oh my gosh, that's willpower. You know what willpower is? You recognize one of these? And what if you just did this? Why isn't it working? Why, am I getting, why aren't I getting power? You see the problem? This is willpower. But Jesus provides a better way for us. He says, no, here's what you need. You need a new, new vision, but you need a new kind of power. 
And it's the Holy Spirit. In this whole passage, he says, listen, let the Spirit flood and fill your life. Let the Spirit come into your life and it's going to produce a new kind of fruit. We get to keep in step with the Spirit. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and we get to use our bodies in ways that honor Him rather than grieve Him. We have to remember that Jesus was walking around and do you know how Jesus could do all the things that He could do? Yes, He was divine, but he He was all divine and all human. But do you know what Jesus had? Jesus had, guess what? The Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus was able to do all those things that he was able to do. That's how Jesus was able to resist Satan in the, in the desert when he was tempting him. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. And if Jesus needed to be filled with the Spirit, then we need to be filled with the Spirit as well. We need a new vision. We need new power. And then we need new practices. We need new practices. We need to submit to practices within our community that, that act as like channels, act as channels where our love can be directed towards restoration, not towards selfishness, not toward greediness, not towards just like get, get what, what's best for me, but, but practices that help channel our, our love towards other-centered others sacrificial care. And it helps us lean into these new identities that we have in Christ where we get to be reformed and renewed. And this happens in community. So um, vision, new, new vision, new power, new practices. This happens on two levels, okay? needs to happen on two levels. First, and guys, remember, this is kind of like, this is the end of this whole sermon series. So we just need to land it here. It needs to happen on two levels. First, it needs to happen individually. We need to, you need to make, I need to make, we all need to make an individual commitment to say, Lord, I am choosing to let you be Lord over my body. Lord, I am choosing to let you be Lord over my, over my sexual desires. Lord, I'm choosing to admit that you know what's best for me and that I don't know what's best for me. Lord, I'm choosing, I'm choosing to let you be Lord and King over, over my whole life. That's the decision that every single one of us has to make if we're going to get in this place where we have a new vision and new power and new practices. It starts with an individual decision. You've heard me say this before, and I don't want to offend anyone because it's totally fine to say the phrase, um, inviting Jesus into your heart. We've heard that before. In fact, maybe you grew up in a church where it's like that's the language that was used is to become a Christian, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. And it's fine language, okay? But we just don't use that language around Westside, okay? So for all of our teams and all of our, our staff, when we gather together and talk about this sort of stuff, I've just made it really clear that I don't, I don't like, there's a reason why I don't like that kind of language. Because if, the, if being a Christian means that I'm just going to invite Jesus into my heart, the problem with that is I can just sort of keep him in my heart. And it's like, hey, Jesus, come live in my house. And will you live in the guest bedroom down the hall? Towels are, are, you know, there's a bathroom across the hall. And could you just stay in that wing, please? Yeah, just that's your, that's a great spot for you. All right. Sundays, um, Bible studies, um, that's a great spot for you to stay. But please, can you stay out of my Friday night wing? Can you stay out of, out of my sexual desire wing? Can you please stay out of my, my, my money wing, please? Just stay out of those places, but you can just, you can have all of my, my, my cutesy fun, you know, Sunday stuff. You can have my potluck stuff, you know? So that's the problem with it. Because you can essentially do this crazy thing where you invite Jesus into your heart, but it doesn't impact the other parts of your life. But following Jesus is this bold, courageous decision to say, Lord, I'm not going to invite you into my heart. I'm going to surrender my heart to you. 
I, I'm just not going to surrender my heart to you. I'm going to surrender my mind. I'm going to surrender my whole body, even this part of my body. I'm going to surrender to you, Lord. You're the king of it all. It's courageous. It's an important decision that all of us has to have to make, but I have to give you a heads up. This is hard. This is hard. It's hard because um, we're learning as God's people to create this counterculture where no matter what's happening in the surrounding culture, that we're being formed into his image. Our loves are being shaped by him and reshaped, formed towards God, love towards others. But this is really hard. It's a hard decision in our culture, in a culture like ours, because it involves a kind of suffering. It involves a kind of suffering to make this sort of a decision. Because you'll feel like you're suffering when you choose to live under the lordship of Jesus in this area. It'll feel like suffering when it seems like everybody else is having this, you know, like this wild crate. Everybody else is living in perpetual spring break, but you're not. It's, you're going to feel this suffering when it looks like, you know, that everybody else is enjoying sex like, like you aren't. And so you're just like, oh man, if I could just do that, then, you know, oh, I'd be fulfilled. And following Jesus in this area means that we're saying, Lord, I'm going to choose to listen to what you say about this. I'm going to trust you with this part of my life. And it will be hard because it'll feel like you're, like you're taking up your cross. It'll feel like it's a form of suffering. But, but in this holds the key to incredible transformation. Right in that, behind that door. See, there's just some doors that if you, you can't get on the other side, you can't get what's on the other side unless you walk through it. And the only way you get on what's the other side of this door is if you, you say, Lord, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to give you this part of my life. And there's deep transformation that happens to us when we do that. Um, people around you might not understand. They might not have a category for this. They're going to think maybe you're strange. What? Like, what, why don't you? everybody else does? You know what I mean? Come on, this is just what we do. But you get to come. And, it, and if you do it with integrity and if you don't do it in a judgmental way, but you say, listen, that's just not who I am. This is, this, is how, this, is, this is what I've chosen to do with my life. Even though if people won't understand, I really believe they will respect you if you do it with integrity, if you do it with class, and if you don't do it in a judgmental way. Um, and then first it happens individually, but then it happens together in community. So these are some certain things that we need to do as a community where, where we're building these practices, okay? So I want to appeal to 1 Corinthians 5 where it talks about how it's not our job to tell the world how to be the world, but it is our job to, to be the church. It's our job as the church to tell the church what the church is supposed to be. And so we don't look outward and tell everybody else what they're supposed to do necessarily, but we do have to look inside. And we have to recognize that we as Christ followers need, we have to build a counterculture, a different kind of culture where dating is different, where our sexual desires are leveraged in a different way, where singleness, marriage, raising kids, breaking generational cycles, reclaiming deep friendships, expanding our tables, building new celebrations and rituals where we support each other in our calling to bravely follow Jesus. This is what we need. We need to be a community where we're just, we've got different rhythms going on here that is that different than what's operating in other parts in the surrounding culture. And what I want to submit to you is this, is that the church, gospel communities, should be marked by being countercultures of two things, discipline and delight. Discipline and delight. Both disciplines, so some boundaries, but also deep delight and joy in this area. So Mark, I'll just give you a couple ideas of, of, uh, of, of what some of these things should be because I, I really believe this, guys. I believe people should be able to come into our church and experience a culture where they feel relief 
from all the pressures out there to commodify people, to jockey for position, to use others for their own sexual desires. There needs to be a different kind of culture here. And what should those things be? Well, uh, a couple things, a couple ideas. There could be tons, but these are just some ones that I feel like are important for us. First is uh, we need to be a community where singles and singleness are honored, respected, and supported. And then in additionally, additionally, where marriage is valued and protected. Where both singleness and marriage are just beautiful, beautiful things that we're protecting and caring for and creating space for. Um, guys, I apologize. The church is, and, and when I say the church, I kind of mean just like historically. Unfortunately, we've kind of done something that's not, that's not great is we've made marriage to be plan A for you, for God's plan A for your life, and kind of unfortunately made singleness be this like really lame plan B for your life. And people come into church and like sometimes marriage is just like, you know, it's just so elevated, which, we sh- which marriage should be elevated, it's beautiful and lovely, but it's so elevated where we don't talk about singleness to where a lot of singles just believe like, I can't be a whole human being unless I get to plan A. And I'm just gonna have to settle for plan B. The problem is, well, the problem with that whole thing is the Bible does not teach that at all. The Bible does not give us a vision for that sort of thing. Um, the Bible, uh, you know, what it says in scripture about singleness is so countercultural. It was countercultural in that day. For Jesus to be a single guy, we worship a single guy. Did you guys know that? For Jesus to be a single guy, for Paul in his letters to write to people and say, hey, singles, um, marriage is great, but also um, married people have a lot of troubles in this life, and I'd like to spare you some of those. (laughs) That's an actual quote from Paul, and I have never read that at somebody's wedding before. (laughs) Paul says, listen, being single is a beautiful way to live. How could Paul say that? It was so countercultural. Nobody was saying things like that. Christianity was the only religion that was, I would say, singleness is beautiful. Because in that culture, in that culture, you didn't have identity unless you had family identity. If you didn't have heirs, if you weren't producing children, then it was like your name was wiped from the planet. The only way that you would have significance in life is if you would have a family and you'd have kids and you'd pass on your land, you'd pass off your family name. And suddenly, because of Jesus and because of the resurrection, Christianity suddenly became this movement where there was all sorts of single people where they felt like valued and loved and they, 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 and why, how come? How could they do that? It's because of this. Because of Jesus and the resurrection, here's what happened. Because of Jesus and the resurrection, singleness became this thing where it was this beautiful testimony to the world that God is the one that satisfies our desires, not human relationships. Human relationships are beautiful and wonderful, but they're but they're temporary and they're never gonna do the, the job. Singleness is this beautiful testimony to the world that God, you are enough, you're enough. And it doesn't mean that I don't need human relationships. Absolutely not. That's where the church gets to come in. That's where we reclaim beautiful, sacred friendships where when you're a single person and you come into the midst of a church, guess what you have? You have sort of, in a way, you have the ultimate husband, which is the Lord, but you also, or ultimate spouse, which is the Lord, but you are surrounded with automatically brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles and fathers and mothers. You are given a new, beautiful family where you have that connection that we, that we so desperately want. Marriage points beyond itself. It points to God's you know, love for us, but singleness points outside of itself to God's sufficiency for us. So both of them, 
the scripture says, are beautiful, great ways to live. Both of them are hard ways to live, by the way. I wrote in my notes, singleness is both painful and wonderful, just like marriage is both painful and wonderful, just like the cross is both painful and wonderful. Each way has its own difficulties. Each way has its own challenges. Each way has its own beautiful joys. I can't do a whole sermon on singleness right now. I've done those in the past. <laughs> um, but singleness needs to be a part of who we are as, as followers of Jesus. We're creating room for singles. Uh, next is, is sex needs to be under, in communities like this, sex needs to be understood as whole life integration. Sex needs to be understood as whole life integration. When people have sex, this is what God, why God created it. It's supposed to be a picture of two people integrating their whole lives, not just their physical bodies, but it's a sign. It's a picture of two people integrating their emotions, uniting their futures, uniting their dreams, uniting their finances, uniting their whole lives. It's a beautiful picture of two people coming together in a covenant relationship. And that's what, that's what that act points towards, a whole life integration. It's making this bold proclamation that I accept everything about you, even the parts that I don't know about yet, even the parts that I don't so much like, but I accept you fully. It's this beautiful picture of how God loves us and cares for us. So it points outside of itself. And so this is where Christians believe that sex is designed for marriage. It's not designed for in love people. It's not designed for dating people. It's not for engaged people, but it's for married people because it points to whole life integration. Great point from Tim Keller. He says this, when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? And for that, the marriage vow is not just helpful, but it's even a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married, that person really means, I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. To say, I don't need a piece of paper to love you is basically to say, my love for you has not reached the marriage level. Whoa. It's about whole life integration. Next is this, we want to be a community where we wait patiently for the kingdom in the midst of our unsatisfied desires. We wait patiently for the kingdom, acknowledging that we have all sorts of unsatisfied desires that will not be met in this life. We live in a world where appetites go unquenched. That's hard for us. It's hard to live in a world like that. Our culture says, obey your thirst. Our culture says, man, satisfy that whatever appetites you have, just go satisfy them. If you only have this amount of time to live, then you better get yours. You better get as much money as you can. You better have as much sex as you can. You just need to, 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 to cram it all in this, this short little life that we have. But the Christian steps into the world and says, this life is not all there is. I don't have this short amount of time to, to, to push all of that in there because I've got eternity in my view. And so therefore, I don't have to feel the pressure to have to cram it all in. I don't have to feel the pressure to, to get my significance out of this little section of my life. And suddenly I'm able to live in a world where I can recognize that all of my desires aren't going to be quenched. And that's okay, because someday they will. 
Someday in the kingdom to come, they will. Here's a quote by Philip Yancey. He says this, a commitment to purity is a sign of hope, an effort to bring personal order into a disordered world. Purity can be sought as a celibate single person or as a married person. Either state involves loneliness and sometimes anguish as well as hope. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, Jesus promised. Note the extent of this promise, and this is key. Not that they will find complete sexual fulfillment and solve all loneliness. No, no, no. But that they will see God. We all, have, we all have to choose between two ways of being crazy, the foolishness of the gospel and the nonsense of the values of our world. <laughs> Next is uh, we want to be a community marked by this, that sexual struggles aren't shrouded in shame or condemnation, but acknowledged and addressed with compassionate love, healing, and restoration. This is the kind of community we want to be a part of. Amen? Isn't it? Where it's not shrouded with this, oh, don't talk about it. Oh, you know, like if you let people know that you struggle with this or that, like, oh, you know, they'll just, uh, you're kind of less than or whatever. No, 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 not here, not here. We want to walk in the way of Jesus, where Jesus made room, where Jesus came in close, where Jesus didn't come in and say, oh, that's fine. What you're doing is just fine. Just keep doing that. That Jesus didn't do that. Jesus came in and he said, there's a better way, but I love you. You belong at my table. I'm coming to your house today for lunch, Levi. That's the way that Jesus did it. And so that's the way that we want to do it. Um, Some of you guys know this, but uh, in college, I I graduated from the University of Oregon with a fine art degree in ceramics. So that was my my major. Um, Why did you major in ceramics, Brooks? I couldn't even answer that question for you. I don't know. It wasn't a good financial move for me. But um, actually, actually, I started throwing pots on the wheel when I was in high school, and it just stuck, and I got really good at it. And then in college, I kind of pursued all sorts of things. But then I thought, you know what? For college, I'm going to just focus on this one thing that I just, I love. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And so why not just take two years and just, just do it? And so I have really fond memories of, of being in that, that glazed fire program at the University of Oregon, kind of like down by the Austin Footbridge. There's all those buildings down there. And so I remember just like long nights of sleeping by the kilns at night. It was my job and a couple other people to fire all the different ceramics classes, um, their work in the kilns. And there's a lot of kilns. And even in the winter, it stays really warm there because the kilns are really hot. And so I would have my pillow and my sleeping bag. And you have to check those, those gas kilns, you know, like every half an hour. So I just set my alarm and I would just sleep there some nights and just doing the glaze fire stuff. I, those are, that was such a fun season of my life. Um, but I saw an article, I saw an article um, recently that I thought was really intriguing and it's really true. It talks about how why ceramic artists are so good at dealing with failure. <laughs> and it's actually a really brilliant article and it's really, really true. Ceramic artists are really good at dealing with failure because you, so many things happen with clay that you cannot control and things all sorts of things happen. Things break all over, all, all the time. I'll always remember there was one student in one of these classes that for her final project had built a really huge, um, a re- like hand, she handmade this really huge um, um, <laughs> a bathtub, right? One of those like freestanding bathtubs like with the, with the legs on it. What are those called? <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Yes, thank you. Um, and she had made one and it was, he was in thick and it was heavy, but it was gorgeous. And we let it dry for about a month because it needs, 
all the moisture has to get out. Because if you put uh, anything, if you put clay with moisture into a kiln, um, the, the, the water heats up and it turns to steam and it, and it just shatters. So we, we let it dry for a month and then we put it in the kiln and we started it slow. We started it low <laughs> for days, for days. And I remember sleeping next to it when it completely exploded. <laughs> just exploded. But that happens all the time with ceramics. You just, you work hard on something and just, and it can crack. There's all sorts of reasons why. And so you just get good at dealing with failure. <laughs> you just get good at dealing with broken pieces. And not too long ago, I came across this ancient, this really cool Japanese kind of ceramics called kintsugi. Can you say kintsugi? It's called kintsugi. And here's what they do is that the Japanese art of kintsugi says this. It says, it says, why make something new when you can take something that's been shattered and broken and you can remake it? And so they take shards of, of, of a pot and then they, they piece the shards together and they actually take, uh, in a lot of cases, they take this, this gold, this gold crack filler stuff, like real gold, and they put it in there. It's a beautiful, beautiful art form. You can Google it. You can see just amazing pieces of these cracked, broken pots that are shattered that should have just been like just swept up and thrown into the garbage. But somebody painstakingly took it, put the pieces together, and glued it together, back together into something that's beautiful. Friends. This is what Jesus is in the midst of doing with you and with me. You might not know this, but you are surrounded right now, all around you. If you just, look, if you just think about who's all sitting around you, you are surrounded by kintsugi people. People who Jesus has slowly but surely been putting the pieces back together. That something that Satan meant for evil in your life, God has come in and he's turned it into something beautiful and good. And that's the picture that we want to send to the world. The picture that we want to send to the world isn't you jerks, you're bad, you're gross, we don't like you. What we need to say to the world is come to Jesus. He will take these broken pieces. And if you let him, he will, make, he will start putting things back together again in his time. That's the kind of community that we want to be a part of. Lastly, and band, why don't you come up? And prayer team, if you're here, then prayer team can go over there. Um, lastly, um, we are putting the joy of Jesus on display as an alternative to the dysfunction of the world. We want to be a, a community of not only discipline, where we have channels that are driving our loves towards other-centered sacrificial care, but also where we are delighting, <laughs> delighting in this good gift of sexual desire that God gave. And we want to be a community where we, where we communicate that this is a beautiful gift that God gave. And so let's protect it. Let's care for it. Let's cherish it. Let's hold it up. Okay, listen. I'm going to bring it into Christmas right now. You ready? <laughs> See, God loves you so much. He loves you so much. He wants you to know that he loves you. And he's going to do all sorts of things to help do that. He's going to use like somebody like me with a microphone to, to tell you in a room like this that he loves you. But that might not sink deep enough. It might not get, get to, to the heart. It might not get to the core. So if you're God and you want to show people, you want to ultimately prove to people that you love them, what are you going to do? What do you do? Well, imagine you're God and you desperately want, these, want people to know that you love them. What are you going to do? If you show up in all of your glory, you will scare them off. If you show up in all of your power and your brilliance and your majesty, it'll be too much. So what do you got to do? Here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to strip yourself of those things. 
you're going to have to you're going to have to not just be up in heaven and throw down some rules but you're going to have to you're going to have to actually come down into their world you're going to have to come down and get your hands dirty you're going to have to you're going to have to come down and get into the mix to show them to prove to them that i am i i love you i'm here you're not alone i'm going to walk with you this is the story of the bible this is the story of jesus and this is the story of christmas and I'm so excited next week to just launch into Advent and just talk about how our world is different because Jesus has come. He loves us. He's, he's shown us. Would you just receive it today? Would you be humble enough to receive it? So um, I'm going to close. And um, we're going to just sing this last song. This is the air I breathe. Just one more time. And here's what I want you to do while we're singing it. Is I want, uh, I want you to consider that as we sing and just as we just give you this moment, that remember what I talked about before? It starts with just a personal decision. Lord, you're my king. I'm gonna make you king over my life. I'm not just gonna invite you into my heart. I'm gonna give you my heart. Would you have the courage and boldness to make that declaration today? Maybe you've made that declaration 20 times already, but maybe you need to make it again today. Today's just your day again. Just make him king and Lord of your life again. Maybe you've never done that before. You've just never been serious about it before. And today is the day. Don't wait. Don't push it off till next week. Just say, Lord, I want to make you Lord and king. And just see what he does. He's just going to make Kintsugi people. Kintsugi people. It's a beautiful thing.